reading a book that has gay characters does it make you gay nope. reading a book about the president does it make you the president i don't know one time i watched the lion king and i think i turned into a lion the next day <laughs> we gotta address the suburban women problem because it's real welcome to the suburban women problem a podcast from red wine and blue Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rachel Vinman. I'm Jasmine Clark. I'm Amanda Weinstein. And you're listening to The Suburban Women Problem. This is our first episode in June. So today we're celebrating Pride Month. I'll get to share my interview with Sarah K. Ellis, the president and CEO of GLAAD, the biggest advocacy organization for LGBTQ people in the country. And before that, we'll be joined by Mindy and Lily Freeman. Lily is a transgender student in Pennsylvania, and Mindy is her proud mom. We even asked our online community sweep if they had any questions for Mindy and Lily. So I think this is going to be a really good community conversation. But before we get to that, What have you guys been seeing in the news? What's been blowing up our group chat? Oh, man. Jasmine, I think, is the biggest troublemaker of all of us. (laughs) I have heard. (laughs) I mean, apparently, I was good. That's what I was going to say, too. So, Jasmine, you made a list. What list did you make? Oh, so apparently, I get uh, to be on Kemp's SHIT list um, (laughs) for the PG 13 out there. And so, in Georgia, a couple of years ago, Republicans uh, brought forth a bill that would allow for the governor to create these things called leadership committees. In other words, PACs that they could run all year round and uh, they could fundraise on all year round, which was before against the law. There were certain times where fundraising couldn't uh, take place and for good reason. Well, anyway, uh, now that he's built up his uh, coffers, he's decided that he's going to spend uh, a significant chunk of that money from his pack to target my race and the race of others uh, in the house. So there's five people on his list and I made it. So I consider this the top five most uh, effective Georgia legislature. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, not to overuse the word troublemaker, but I think that's what you are, like a legit troublemaker for Governor Brian Kemp. I mean, the truth is in Georgia, I've been a thorn in his side. I think that uh, Kemp has, a lot of people try to make it seem like Kemp isn't so bad because he's not Trump. It's a low bar. But if you live here in Georgia, you do know that Kemp has actually uh, signed some pretty radical and pretty extreme legislation. Mm-hmm. I mean, he signed voter suppressive laws. He signed bills that have taken away reproductive rights here in the state of Georgia. He's done things that kind of put him on the same level as Trump. The difference is he's just not as bombastic and publicly mm-hmm. like, oh, I did this. He's a little bit more uh, insidious yeah. in his movements. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, to be on his bad side is kind of like on the right side, Mm -hmm. but that does mean I am being targeted. So yeah, that was how I, like, I literally woke up one morning and I had like all these calls and texts. They were like, oh my gosh, did you hear? It's like the Academy Awards. Like when you get the calls (laughs) late at night, it does like, oh, I'm the top five list. I am the top five biggest troublemaker in Georgia. I do have one, like, so one question. If he can use this money, can you fundraise early? So technically, I myself could not. Um, However, the Democratic caucus and the Republican caucus Mm -hmm. can. Mm -hmm. But what I will say is this. um, I can only raise money 
when I'm out of session. So I can't raise money while I'm in session. However, and this came up when Stacey Abrams was running. Basically, Brian Kemp was uh, made these leadership committees so that he was able to raise money while Stacey Abrams wasn't. It was like this whole thing that, uh, you know, it was like really controversial, actually. Oh, yeah. They changed the rules. Yeah. That's like their go to playbook. Yes. Yes. So we have um, Frank LaRose did the same thing in Ohio where we're uh, trying to get reproductive rights on the ballot. And they're like, oh, wait, mm, I think this could pass with the majority. No, they know it could pass with the majority. So let's change it to where you have to get um, 60 percent. Right. And at first, Frank LaRose was like, oh, no, that's not what it's about. This is about making sure special interests don't come into Ohio as special interests came into Ohio to help fund his campaign. Right. <laughs> then he just it just leaked that he did admit to donors. He's like, oh, this is 100 percent about abortion. And I was like, oh, so interesting. Like, there's your gaffe where you're like, accidentally say the truth. And I think, you know, back to what Jasmine said about Brian Kemp wants to pretend like he's okay. He's like the good option. And I mean, we have to admit there are a lot of Republicans and a lot of like middle of the road people, I guess, independents, if you will, that really want some options. And they're willing to find options where there really aren't any. Right. So this wasn't really something we were going to talk about, but we did text about it a little bit in our group chat. And that is the explosive piece in the Atlantic, very long form journalism. I'm here for it. I love a good meaty Atlantic piece (laughs) about CNN and their CEO, Chris Licht. One of the things that really struck me and I screenshotted it and sent it to you guys because I was pretty outraged, but the idea that It wasn't Chris Licht, it was like his PR executive who was like, well, I think what Chris is trying to say here is, yes, normally the things that Trump said would be an 11, but we have to recalibrate because if that's an 11, then everything is going to be an 11. And what happens when he does something that really undermines democracy? Like, what do we do then? I'm like, how about we make it a 20? Right. Because as someone who, as a woman, All that stuff was definitely an 11 to me. As someone whose family was attacked and when democracy was under fire, I also think that was important. All those things needed to be covered. Right. And I understand the tricky point of view from the media who's trying to talk about everything in sort of an unbiased way. But again, as we often say, there's really no good side to liars. And there's really no good side to voter suppression or right. criminalizing being poor, all that stuff. There is no good light on it. So sometimes you're just going to talk about it and it's not going to flatter anyone. Certainly not Governor Brian Kemp. But I think what it also did is it didn't separate the difference between what you say and what you do. Right. So it highlighted so much these bombastic things that Trump said that like then when he actually does try to destroy our entire democracy, we're like, well, that's bad, too. And you're like, yeah, but as you said, that's a 20, not an 11. And we need to talk about that like a 20. Yeah. Right. So when Governor Kemp does bad stuff, that's bad, too. Probably worse than saying bad stuff when you're actually acting on it. Right. And the media seems to have a very hard time distinguishing between bad actors and people who are just going around saying a bunch of terrible stuff. And what that does is it highlights the most bombastic voices. Mm -hmm. And then you get bad decisions of where companies make decisions on the loudest voices. You get school districts who make decisions on the loudest voices. Like in Florida, in Hernando County, where 
they are making decisions and letting the loudest voices be the ones that dictate the day. And then where does that leave you is they're reporting 50 teachers are planning to resign. Mm -hmm. Students and parents who are in the majority are now in an uproar defending their teachers. They're going to have a school district suddenly with 50 teachers not there. And this is all because some parents on the right had a very loud voice about teachers, you know, indoctrinating students to be gay. And one math teacher basically said, uh, this is Alyssa Morano said, no one is teaching your kids to be gay. Sometimes they just are gay. I have math to teach. I literally don't have time to teach your kids to be gay, which I was like, yes, exactly. (laughs) I don't have time to indoctrinate any students. It's not in the curriculum. It's just not in the curriculum. No. Like I love, there was one teacher like, I I can't even get them to turn in their work or sit in their seats. Why do you think I have this much control? I can't get them to read a chapter. I, I just want them to read a chapter before class. I, can't I, do it. I felt I that like I just so deep. And me as like a former teacher, but also as a parent, like I don't have that control either. Why do I think this other person has that control? Yeah. <laughs> Being gay is not in the curriculum. Reading a book that has gay characters doesn't make you gay. Yep. Reading a book mm-hmm. about the president doesn't make you the president. I don't know. One time I watched The Lion King and I think I turned into a lion the next day. <laughs> yeah. I probably turned into like Pumbaa or Timon. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> what you know, but one of the things that I think that we're seeing, though, like you mentioned Florida, that is a very red county as far as how they vote. Mm-hmm. So I think that sometimes the loudest voices in the room think they're speaking for everyone, but the pushback is actually coming from people that technically, I would say not all of them, but at least some of them probably are voting for Republicans. But they're saying you guys are going too far. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's important. I think we talk a lot. We've talked a lot on this pod about just going too far, listening to the wrong voices and having a certain small vocal minority strip the freedoms away from everyone else. This is a running theme. And so that is the reason why people like Kemp want to get rid of voices like mine, because I am speaking for the people who might not, you know, come with bullhorns and fancy t-shirts and talking points to the school board meeting about why we should get rid of Amanda Gorman's poem, like you guys from schools, like they might not be doing that, but I'm speaking for them. And they are telling me, we like what you do. That is why we send you back to the Capitol. So I think it's really interesting to see in a lot of states where you have Republicans in power are so afraid of the majority and what the majority will do. And right now in Ohio, I know they are very afraid of what the majority will do, not only with abortion rights, but also with minimum wage and marijuana and you name it. They are really afraid of what the majority wants. And I think it's interesting that once you give Democrats some power, then you see they do what the majority of people want. So we saw this in Minnesota. This was huge that once Minnesota got a majority, they codified abortion rights, they have paid family leave, they have medical leave, they have sick leave, they have transgender rights protections, they have tax credits for parents and kids, background checks, red flag laws, so much stuff that is so widely viewed as things we should be doing. That's what Dems do. And we need to find ways to where we can all start talking about those wins and what those wins are, and maybe not as much on the extreme crazy voices. 
And we have had some wins against the extreme crazy voices. So if you look at, you know, Illinois, New Jersey are the first states to ban book bans. I love this. This is like my favorite. I mean, this is amazing. It is. Like, that's what we need to do. Oh, you're going to ban books? All right, then I'm going to ban book bans. <laughs> <laughs> I see your ban and I trump it with another ban. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like something out of a Will Ferrell movie, honestly. Like something that would happen in like Step Brothers or something. I don't know. <laughs> but it's a good thing. Yeah. It's a good thing. It's necessary. It, it's it, it's only necessary because of the current political environment that we're in. It should not be necessary. Mm-hmm. Honestly, we really should not have to ban people from taking away someone's freedom to read whatever the freak book they want to read. But here we are. Yeah. And so yeah. now that we're here, I'm glad it's being done. So this is this is the force that we're working with and we have to react to what's going on. And sometimes I think that actually pushes us to do things that are outside our comfort zone and we have to learn about things. We have to have conversations that we're like, I don't really know anything about this and so I feel uncomfortable talking about it. But that's how it is. And that's just, that's okay. Um, it's just important that you make yourself open and willing to do those things. And for that reason, in so many ways, I am just, I'm so excited to talk to our troublemakers today. There is so much misinformation out there about trans kids. I think there's more misinformation than good information. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> and I am really glad to talk to Mindy and Lily so we can hear more about their experience firsthand. I cannot stress how important this is. I really think that personal stories are one of the best antidotes to misinformation. Amen. Hi, Mindy and Lily. Thanks for joining us. Of, of course. course. <laughs> you guys are so cute. I didn't even plan that. <laughs> when I saw the picture of you guys, I knew this was going to be amazing. So Lily, I would love to hear more about your journey. You know, extremists pretend that kids are making these decisions about their gender without really thinking about it. And it's like some epidemic in the water. But this has been something you've been sure about for as long as you can remember. Yeah. I mean, whenever I tell my story to people, that's always like the first thing I say. It's always Mm -hmm. like, I always knew I was a girl, but I didn't know, I didn't know the words to express it. I didn't really know how to put it into words. It was just this, it's just this thing about being trans. It's like a deep feeling that you can't really explain. And a big misconception is that, oh, okay. Like these trans kids, they're just like deciding to switch genders. Mm -hmm. It's a choice and stuff. But being trans, it, it's not, it wasn't a choice. It was really a way for me to affirm that identity that I've always felt my entire life. So of course, growing up, I gravitated to the more feminine toys. You know, I always had the Barbies, um, the Polly Pockets of my sisters, stuff like that. But I didn't really notice anything like off of me until I got into elementary school and day camp and stuff where, of course, they started to separate stuff by gender. You know, like boys go to this side of the room, girls go to this side of the room. And it made me feel very uncomfortable with myself. Like, why do I have to be separated? I don't feel like I really belong in this group. And I didn't necessarily further that feeling until, of course, the human growth and development topics and the health unit started to come up in elementary school, because that's really when my peers started looking around. They're like, okay, well, Lily has all female friends. She um, does all these feminine things, but she's presenting as boy. And a lot of people, when they're young and they're learning about 
you know, growing up and puberty and stuff like that, it's kind of weird for a lot of people. Like it doesn't really connect in their brains. And that led to a lot of harassment throughout elementary school. And that's really where I started contemplating, well, I'm not necessarily gay because that's like what I was being called. Well, what am I? And that really made me come to terms with, okay, well, what are these feelings? And it wasn't until I met trans people that I realized this is possible for myself and this is who I am. Wow. It really shows the importance of like having representation in books and being able to see that representation in other people. And I love that you talked about how like the, the rest of the world can see it as you suddenly making this choice because that's how they see it right from the outside. But from the inside, having the feelings all along, it doesn't seem like you suddenly made a choice because you had all these inside feelings the whole time. So I'm wondering, Mindy, what was your journey like as a mom to you know, see everything that Lily went through? So the things that Lily was telling you about from a young age, my spouse and I saw those things like having female friends and playing with what you would call the gender gender stereotypical toys mm-hmm. and things like that. But to be honest with you, we really didn't understand the difference between gender identity and sexual orientation. So in our head, even as early as three years old, my husband and I, one night, we actually were laying in bed and we said to ourselves, we think that she's going to tell us one day that she's gay. And we were like, cool, that's cool. That's cool with us. One day she's going to tell us this. Because we, like I said, we didn't have that understanding at that point. So, I mean, we allowed, um, Lily is the youngest of three children. We have three older daughters. So, I mean, two older daughters, sorry. <laughs> She's our third. And so, you know, we allowed all of our children to explore whatever their likes were. So if Lily, you know, liked more of dr- more things that were involved with like trauma or arts and crafts, that was fine. But it wasn't like she said until around fourth grade where she felt comfortable enough to come to first her sisters and then to us to be able to share with us about how she was feeling. And to be honest with you, we did not have all the answers and it wasn't as clear to us, but we hugged her. We told her we loved her. We kissed her. And that's where our learning journey began. And like you were saying, it began with a lot of books, a lot of reading, consulting healthcare professionals and listening and listening to Lily, listening to our child and believing our child. I think as a parent, like, will we ever know all the answers? Will we ever have all? I mean, I just think that that's like, there is no manual. And even as we build the plane, as we fly it, all these different things keep changing. All the different parts to the plane keep changing. I think that fundamentally, we can always start with love and the love of our children and, and and protection and wanting to protect our children and just wanting to see our children grow and thrive. Uh, we're all moms on here and we all can probably tell like a million stories about our kids. And so one of the things that you've said is that being trans is probably one of the least interesting things about Lily. So if you could let the world know, like, what do you want them to know about Lily Besides, you know, her gender identity, like what is, who is Lily? All right, let's hear it. That's a great question. You know, I, I, I say that because we do not, as much as the world talks right now about trans youth and trans people, that is not discussed on a daily basis in our home. I mean, Lily, just like a typical teen, 16 and a half, gets up groggily for school and she's an honor student. She is in National Honor Society. She's in Art Honor Society. 
she loves everything creative. She, in fact, you know, she taught, just taught herself recently how to crochet. She made me an amazing bag and she loves anything creative. You know, I just, my middle daughter just went to visit her at school today and noticed that she had three pieces displayed in the atrium. So like I said, very extremely creative. She's very funny and she makes us laugh without even trying. She's very sarcastic (laughs) (laughs) and, and she's really an amazingly kind person. And with everything going on in the world, she puts other people before herself. I love that. I, you know, I love that Mindy. Uh, What I, what I really like is that what you're telling us, and and I think educating our, our listeners is this misconception that when we say like gender identity or sexual identity, it doesn't mean your actual entire identity is that. Right. I think you're right. People have focused on it so much. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways that our listeners can say is this is just not a thing. Stop making it a thing. Stop trying to make fetch a thing. <laughs> so every parent wants their child to be safe. And our sweep community Ask Mindy, what is something we can do to help Lily feel safe? So I'm happy actually for Lily or Mindy, either one of you to answer that question or both. I mean, for me personally, throughout my journey and stuff, I think the most important thing that I've told people is educating others and educating yourself at the same time. So making sure you're listening to everybody's like many different stories because my story, I'm just, I'm just one story and everybody's story is so different. And I think, I think you can really take something away from everybody's stories. And then also educating others. I mean, if you see somebody uh, spreading different misinformation, correct them. It used to be enough to have visible allyship. I feel like, you know, I mean, we've, I work for a corporation and we talk about like putting an ally sticker and making sure it's out there, but I really feel like actionable allyship is so important. Yeah. We say like a difference between like a company putting up a pride flag in their logo and then a company taking action to actively like protect employees and stuff like you that know, and actually show that support. You know, we talked about all of these things that Lily has, for her, you know, plans for her future, you know, applying to college and these misinformed ideas prevent kids like Lily from being able to successfully do those things. Now, Lily... And I'm going to say has the privilege of having a supportive home. And if school isn't safe on a given day, she can come home and tell us. But not every kid has that. So I think it's so important that your listeners, if they see something, say something, Um, whether it be on a local level at a school board or on a national level, you know. Because really it it affects all kids. And we see that because for kids who are affected specifically for marginalized communities, you know, these books are mirrors to see their own stories and their own lives and to feel accepted in schools. But it's also for the students who aren't part of those communities to learn about others and again, to educate themselves through people's stories. I can only imagine how frustrating it feels for politicians to come and think that they know better, who have, you know, they don't have the experience. They don't have the consultation with doctors. They don't have your child telling you what they're feeling. And yet many people out there, including those politicians, you know, they claim that they're fighting to protect these children, to protect children like Lily. And maybe some of them even believe it. But if they really care about kids, right, it seems to me that they should probably listen to the kids and what those kids are saying more. 
So Lily, I'm wondering, like, what do you wish, you know, people would know or would listen to more? What do you wish would happen in schools? I think to establish it, like our family is just like any other family, you know, we have discussion at the dinner table, we play games, we do s'mores on our deck and stuff like that. So our family is just like any other family. And I think we just want to be respected in our communities. We don't have to be accepted by others, but if people could see us as humans and to listen to our stories and to at least try to educate themselves from what we say, I think, I think that would be the most beneficial. If I, if I could add really to that about the schools, I mean, most policies that are made at the school level or even at the national level are people that have never met a trans person talking to other people that have never met a trans person. Absolutely. So like Lily said, like, listen to the people, listen to the stories, the lived experiences. It is an important point. And I just want to say, like, even since y'all have been on today, you all exude joy. Like, you made me smile. Like, the moment y'all got on camera, the moment we started talking to you. And, you know, I know right now the political environment is really tough. And I know that people on social media can just be brutally and unnecessarily mean. And I'm just really curious, how do you hold on to your joy in the midst of all this negativity? I mean, firstly, like we do, I mean, even though we look joyful most of the time, we do feel like these emotions, like we are exhausted and frustrated and at sometimes like sad about what's going on in our country. But One of the things that really attracted me to activism in the first place and fighting against censorship in schools is thinking about all of the kids like me who are going through school right now and who might not even be out yet and who are struggling. And I want to do my best and what I can to help those students and make sure that they don't have to go through any of the harassment and bullying that I went through. Thank you so much, Lily. That is just the kindest. I mean, you know, activism, even when you come from a pure place like that, it's exhausting. It takes a lot of work and a lot of effort, um, but that you're willing to do that is really, really beautiful. Yeah. Kindness is your superpower. And I know your mom mentioned that earlier. I can see how that drives you, makes you brave. And I I just want to also point out that I think it's important for people to understand that just because you're always smiling when you're out and when you're doing things and when you're on camera, that doesn't mean that you do not feel when you are being targeted. Because a lot of times people do think that like, oh, well, if I'm not happy, then maybe something's wrong with me or if I can't. And so I, I think it's important for people to understand, as you said, you are a human being. Yes, you can smile through the pain sometimes, but that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. And so, uh, you know, just like it does for anybody else. And I think that's an important message that that people should understand. And I, I appreciate what you do. I think activism is hard because you really are fighting for sometimes people who don't feel like they have enough fight in them. And so I, I, I just appreciate all that y'all are doing. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, 
Thank you so much for joining us. And I think this is going to be so meaningful and helpful to our listeners. So we really, really appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having us. You said, of course. Gonna gonna that <laughs> Thank you. You know, one of the things that I think of, you know, when talking to them, I mean, they're just so lovely is, so I was actually talking to a friend and I feel like I mentioned the same couple friends on this podcast all the time. So I'm not going to say her name, but she was talking about some of her friends reactions to Target and Chick-fil-A and <laughs> all this. And we were texting back and forth. And one of the things I said is, our children see the way that we react to these events Mm -hmm. and they're watching. So maybe it's not, maybe they're not gay. Maybe they're not trans, but there's something about them that they perceive as different. That's a really big deal to them and maybe not such a big deal to us, but they don't have the really ability to categorize and make that distinction. So they might find something, they might see something and think there's something really wrong with them because they're not just like everyone else. So, you know, the way we are in the big things is the way we are in the small things. And there are always these little humans watching us and reacting and taking their cues from us, not only on how to treat others, but how they will be accepted in our families and society as a whole. I think it's really interesting how much Mindy said that, that she listened to her daughter and that, and Lily said she just wanted to be listened to. And when we think about, Mindy also said, you know, what a, you know, a privilege it is to have such a supportive environment and that helps you get through it. And that helps you have the strength to speak out. But when we see this target and the Chick-fil-A, you know, hubbub, you know, freaking out about their, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, like what that's showing everyone is we're not listening and what you say and who you are isn't valuable. I think that that's a really important point. Um, I think that when it comes to so many different policies and things, uh, so whether it is gender identity, whether it's sexual orientation, whether it's what should this book be available or should this book not be available to, you know, should we care about the fact that um, climate change is happening? Young people have been saying things for a while. And I think traditionally, we have decided as a society that young people don't know what they're talking about. Like, oh, you just haven't been around long enough. You don't know what you're talking about. But the truth is, they're saying, hey, I care about this because this will affect me longer than it will affect you. Yeah. And that's all our kids are asking for. Don't discount them. Don't tell them they don't know what they're talking about. Don't tell them that what they're experiencing didn't happen. Don't tell them what they saw with their own eyes they didn't see. Like, let's not do that to the youth because, you know, again, they're our future. And every decision we make now affects them much longer than it affects everybody else. Yep. All right. Now we're going to have a quick break. And when we come back, we'll have my interview with Sarah K. Ellis. As our amazing troublemaker Lily just mentioned, if we want to stand up and be allies, it's important that we start by educating ourselves. But it can be intimidating to learn about something if we don't know where to start. So this Thursday, June 8th, we're holding a special AMA event. AMA stands for Ask Me Anything. It's a virtual conversation about gender with Jess McIntosh, where you can feel free to ask questions without any judgment. You can learn more and sign up at redwine.blue or by clicking the link in the show notes. 
Our guest today is a mom, an author, and a media executive. In 2014, she became president and CEO of GLAAD, the largest advocacy organization for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Americans in the country. Sarah K. Ellis, thank you so much for joining me on the Suburban Women Problem. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I would love to start by learning more about GLAAD. Could you tell our listeners about the work that GLAAD does? Absolutely. So GLAAD is an advocacy organization. We function, we were founded, gosh, almost 40 years ago um, during the AIDS crisis, and we were holding media accountable. So the reporting that was coming out about gay men and AIDS. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we opened a chapter in Los Angeles to lobby Hollywood to include us in films and our stories because we realized the media was making up our narrative and our stories were Mm -hmm. told. So that's still our formula is representation in culture. It's changed as media has changed. So now we're in social media. Now we're actually, because so much of the media is focused on Washington, we're in the Halls of Congress, oftentimes. Mm-hmm. It used to be a one-way street out of New York media or Hollywood is now disseminated into all different platforms. And so we're in all of those places, making sure that the LGBTQ community is represented. That is so important. Um, representation is is just vital. And I, I like it as a mom myself of being an entry point of answering questions is always easier than bringing up like a cold topic um, that, you know, your child maybe not be ready, curious to ask about, but when they see things and they can ask about it, it's just a much more organic conversation. And you can really, you know, just have a chance to have a meaningful conversation because it's on their level when they're bringing up something that they have seen or questions that they have. So that's where I think representation is so vital. Mm-hmm. So speaking of children, you and your wife, Kristen, have two beautiful children. Has becoming a mom changed the way you approach advocacy? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's, I think yeah. the whole reason why, so I spent two decades in corporate America at media companies at Condé Nast and Time Inc. working on magazines like InStyle and mm-hmm. Vogue and Real Simple. And when when magazines were starting to um, change and amorphous because of the internet, I was starting to look for something new to do. And at that moment in time, my kids were four years old. So now they're 14. And I realized that I wanted to work in some place that made the world a much better place for my family. Mm-hmm. And that's how I ended up at, at GLAAD, honestly. Oh, that's perfect. When when you hear attacks on the LGBTQ community couched as parents' rights, what goes through your head as someone who's both a member of the community and also a parent? I think often it's for some parents, not all parents' rights. Mm-hmm. Yes, we agree. If you are a parent in America today, you are scared for your children. There's this social me- media. We just, these poor kids just went through COVID and they went through the most divisive political moment or election that we've, that I've ever seen in my lifetime, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I always, my kids were entering middle school at that moment in time and Just when they were supposed to be emerging as these little social beings, they were masked and put in pods. And then there was this political environment where these kids would come into school 
spouting whatever their parents felt at home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And on top of it, then you can layer in social media and us as parents not being prepared for it, not knowing how to handle it, and the companies, the big monster companies not handling it at all. So I feel that that this is misdirected and that instead, why don't we hold the media, the social media companies culpable? Why are we picking on other parents? Why are we picking on kids? Mm-hmm. I don't understand that. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is this small group of extremists yeah. who have glommed onto this moment and are trying to cause more division mm-hmm. and more anxiety. And the real the real villains are getting away. Yeah. And we're sitting here having these conversations about like parents taking care of their kids, parental, you know, banning LGBTQ books. I mean, it's all, it's fear mm-hmm. and it's misalignment. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I, I completely agree. Everyone is very scared, but instead of being scared at the real enemy, we are very much distracted and um, our we're all paying a price, but our children are paying a bigger price for it. Uh, you, you've you been very open about your own personal journey, co-authored a book with your wife called Times Two, Two Women in Love and the Happy Family They Made. And your wedding was written about in Huffington Post in a profile called Here Comes the Brides. I looked it up today. Your pictures are stunning. <laughs> Now that I know you worked for Vogue and magazines, it all makes sense. But I mean, it does help that you're very photogenic people, but just it was it was a beautiful wedding. Why have you wanted to be so open about your family? And what has the response been like to that? So the reason why is because I know how powerful media is and how it can mm-hmm. change hearts and minds. And so mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, I my wife is in a rock band. And so she's always been a public figure. I am not. Yeah. I mean, I am now, but it's not comfortable for me. It wasn't really what I was seeing, what I wanted to be. But I I felt that it was so important to utilize the access and the platform that I had to help change hearts and minds. When my wife and I got pregnant at the exact same time. Oh my. And so we call the kids twins, but they're really they're okay. three weeks apart. They were due on the same day, but one came early and one came late. And um, when that happened, I was working, I was the head of marketing at Real Simple Magazine. And the editor of Real Simple Magazine came to me and said, can we have a photographer and a writer follow you through your trimesters? Like, what is this like being pregnant with your best friend and your wife? Or we weren't married then, we weren't allowed. Um, And I had to really think about that. And when I what I decided was I knew a lot because I was the head of marketing there. I knew that there were 8 million women who read this magazine a month. And most of them lived in the middle of the country. They never met a family like mine. And so if I wasn't introducing what families look like LGBTQ families were, then who was? And so I thought it was important to take control of the narrative. And it's, you know, how I ended up here is because I understand that power of the media and how it can really move and open hearts and minds. Wow. I'm sure you did make a difference. What has the reception been like to, you know, what was the reception like to sharing that story? 
You know, it was interesting. It was it was before social media. Mm-hmm. This was in 2009 and it was it was really kind of positive. I mean, there was a little bit of it, um, a little bit of the letters to the editor, but it definitely was not, it was such a minority of voice. Mm -hmm. Um, Most people were really, you know, supportive and loving and kind. And most people had an experience from that that they never wrote in about, but it was a positive experience. Um, And that's the part that you don't quantify, but absolutely happens. One issue that consistently comes up in discussions about trans kids is their participation in sports. And you were actually an athlete in your youth. You played field hockey and you were a junior swimmer. What is your perspective on the hysteria over trans kids playing sports? (laughs) Thank you for calling it hysteria. Uh, (laughs) So here's what we're up against. There is a knowledge and information gap severe one. Mm-hmm. 30% of Americans say they know someone who's trans. So 70% of that gap, information gap, is right now being filled by Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott and the media just repeating what these folks are saying. And so people don't know what to think. But I can tell you a couple of things. One is Trans kids have always been playing sports. This is not new. Mm -hmm. They didn't just emerge out of a rock or a boat landed here or a spaceship. They've been here. It was like gay people. We were always Mm -hmm. here. You just didn't see us. So they've always been playing sports. I think what's really important to remember, too, is that for elite sports, there have always been rules and regulations Mm -hmm. around trans participation. It is at the kid level. And we all know as parents how important sports can be for kids. Yes. I mean, I have the, I have two kids. I know that like the sense of community it can build, the belonging it gives you. It is so much more than who gets the goal. And so I think when we are narrowing it down to, is it going to be a trans girl or a non-trans girl that's going to get that one seat on that one team that happens so infrequently mm-hmm. you can't even add like name the times it's happened yes yeah no absolutely mm-hmm. so I think that participation is really what we're all about and like if you're going for elite athleticism or a sport that's a different path anyway. Sure. Like mm-hmm. let kids play. No, I, I completely agree with you. We, we recently moved and my daughter swimming and playing sports, she's 12. It's just a completely different experience. It's a different interaction and making friends. And it's a completely different skill set than what you learned at school. And it reinforced for me what I always knew about the importance of sports and how it's it's so, so important because it, it also fosters confidence at a time when they so need wins that aren't, yes. that are sometimes not academic or not something you can measure. It's, it's something totally separate and a self-satisfaction and a self-pride. And I think when you're, when you're already a little different than society tells you, uh, you know, that everyone is, it, it can add so much and, and we should stop and think about that. But I, I, your point about only 30% know someone who is trans, that 70% so vulnerable to misinformation and disinformation. And that's what they're counting on. So as we've seen recently with Target, 
Corporate allyship can sometimes be a little conditional or unreliable. Do you have any tips for how we can make good consumer choices and support the LGBTQ community? I think Anheuser-Busch and Target, who have been big supporters of the LGBTQ community for decades now, let bullies win and let themselves be intimidated by extremists. And I, that's a really bad precedent to set for our country, for business. So there are hundreds of companies who are celebrating pride. And it is also the, the companies that you're not seeing in the headlines, like Nike, North Face, or the LA Dodgers, who have been challenged mm-hmm. or you know, the small extremist groups are coming after them and they haven't ceded ground. Yeah. They stood up to them. So I say, you know, it's really important to, in this moment in time, when we've seen over 500 anti-LGBTQ bills proposed in this session since January, and we see GLAD reported over 160 attacks on LGBTQ events in less than a year um, or threats of violence, attacks or threats of violence. It's really important that our corporate partners who have been working with us for years use their power and influence in this moment in time and stand up. Mm-hmm. And so I I think um, I'm really encouraging them to setting up a support system so that they understand what that means and what that looks like. Look, we've become a much more violent society. Yes. Way more violent. It, it is. It, and that is something that we should all be addressing together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I think that now it's, this is a reality for LGBTQ people every day. Yes. Violence, the bullying, the harassment. And now we're seeing it amplified to corporates. Mm-hmm. Luckily, they have more resources than an individual walking down the street. No, but it's it's a glimpse into a life that, you know, or situation that a lot of cisgender straight people don't understand. But you can see, I mean, you know, to back down from it gives into bullies. And I think we all know how that ends. It's it's never a positive thing. And so I, and I'm sure GLAD gives resources and helps people how to, you know, helps corporations how to navigate these, you know, tricky waters, because when you do have social media, it amplifies everything, you're able to, yeah, to see it. And once it happens, that gets all the attention. And that's the conversation. So yeah, it becomes not about supporting the community, it becomes about the bigger picture and, and the craziness and the chaos that is being wrought. And then you have to ask like, well, what's the answer here? And I think a lot of people don't know the answer, but they're well-intentioned and don't know what to do. So they think, okay, we'll just stop this. But then what is what are you saying with those actions as well? So I think anytime having an advocacy organization who can give some people you know, uh, some direction and kind of, you know, have a longer horizon of like, look, we've been doing this for a long time. So here's our experience. This is what we would say is critical. So thank you for the work that you all do. I think it's really important. Thank you. Yes, we created a corporate rapid response for pride, uh, which we have, we're meeting with, I think, over 200 corporates tomorrow, sort of brief them and get them up to speed. Because I do think that the target and the Anheuser-Busch were taken, were 
were caught off guard, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think that they responded really quickly without understanding the situation and the mm-hmm. context mm-hmm. around it. And so we want to build out that yeah. context and that and give people a better understanding. Well, I'm sure it'll be well attended because this is probably at the top of everyone's mind is how do we do the right thing, but not do the wrong thing also um, in this space? Well, this has been wonderful, but now we have to get to the really tricky part, which is the rapid fire questions. Are you ready? All right, let's try it. Okay. All right. What surprised you the most about being a parent? How hard it is. (laughs) I just thought it was going to be like, oh, I'm a different parent. I'm so different than my parents. And I'm like, what is this? Fair. That's very fair. What's your favorite movie or TV show that features LGBTQ characters? Um, When I started at GLAAD, we started the kids and family programming as part of the GLAAD Media Awards because we were, for the first time, had enough of a body of work where our families were being shown in kids and family. So the original for me and my kids was Doc McStuffin. Oh, yeah. And when they had the two mom doctors at one Mm -hmm. point, I think. And it was, I think it was Portia. The voiceovers were Ellen DeGeneres and Portia. So, um... That was like an original that I loved. I remember. Yeah. And we had a big, we called it Doc McStuckins at our house. But yes, um, I remember that as well. Uh, So the GLAAD Awards were a couple of weeks ago and you wore a beautiful hot pink jumpsuit. Where do you get your style inspiration? Um, Well, that was, you know what? That was very fortunate. Christian Siriano dressed me for that. So it was really what they chose. Uh (laughs) Well, again, I also looked at a picture that you did look fabulous, but your coloring also lends itself to hot pink. Not everyone can wear hot pink. My mom always said pink is your color. We had Chastin Buttigieg on the pod a few episodes ago to talk about his new book for young readers. I have something to tell you. Do you have any other kids' books that you would recommend by LGBTQ authors? Uh, well, my wife and I wrote one called All Moms. Okay. So I that's one of my faves. There are so many now that are really Mm -hmm. great. I have to think about it more, but definitely my own. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's good. That's really good. And actually my friend Brad Meltzer has a book in his Every Ordinary Heroes or Everyday Heroes. I'm sorry, Brad, I don't know. And it's about Billie Jean King. And it is a great book. It's been banned a lot of places. And we were just talking about this the other night. And a lot of people have banned it. But he also talks about how many people love it and that they learn something from it. So um, it's a great book, too, if you're looking for one. So what Pride event are you most looking forward to this year? Mm. I don't want to get you in trouble. You know, I think... The White House event is going to be pretty special. It's going to be big. It's good. I, I think that the president wants to use the White House as a place for the community to come together and find some joy mm-hmm. in some pretty dark times. And so I think it's going to be a really special event. That's wonderful. I hope you enjoy it. Well, that's our last question. Um, where can people go to find out more about GLAD? Well, thank you for asking that. That would be at glad.org. And that's two ways. So it's glaad.org. Okay. Well, this has been so wonderful. I think our listeners are going to learn so much from your answers. And thank you again for joining us on the Suburban Women Problem. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it.
Welcome back, everyone. Rachel, I loved your interview with Sarah Kate. Um, I loved when she was talking about how she wasn't thrilled to be in the public eye, but she agreed to have her wedding profiled in HuffPo because she knows the importance of representation. And I totally felt that in a different way where, Rachel, I know you know, and Jasmine, you too, uh, that it's hard to be in the public eye and it's hard to put yourself out there and your family out there, but it's important that people see us all as humans and that we're all represented, you know, across the board. So I thought that was, uh, it was really an interesting story that she, that she talked about there. Yeah. There's a lot of emotional labor into putting yourself out there. There is. There is. And I don't think that people recognize that. Actually, I'm glad that um, Mindy and Lily brought that up. Like, Mm. you know, yeah, we're joyful, but that doesn't mean that things don't affect us. Yeah. Because there is a lot of like, discomfort and maybe even a little bit of pain with being so out there for people to scrutinize your every move and Mm -hmm. have something to say about every single thing that you do. So, you know, it's hard, but, you know, I feel like those who are willing to do it and able to do it, they really are doing a service for those who might not quite necessarily be there yet. A hundred percent. I, it's, it's not easy. I mean, I think all three of us know it's not easy to put yourself out there. Absolutely. Well, I think these were both pretty great, joyful interviews, and this has been kind of a really happy episode, but we are going to end on a toast to joy, as we always do. So with that, Amanda, what is your toast to joy this week? So my toast to joy is my youngest, Brady, graduated from pre-K, and we had- Cutest pictures ever. I know. (laughs) So fun. Uh, so Brady's adopted. And so his biological mom came up and great, uh, great grandma came up. And I know he loved having um, just so many people around him that loved him. And then even uh, so my daughter, Amelia, who can never let Brady have anything to himself. It's like, nope, she's my grandma too. <laughs> sisters do. I know. And she's like, nope, I need all the attention from whatever adult is. It. So yeah. So I think it's a lot of fun that, um, kind of how our family has evolved and it looks different, but I love it. And I love our family and it was a wonderful time to just celebrate Brady and celebrate, you know, our family coming together and it's okay that it looks different. Congratulations on passing. Yes, uh, you know, pre-K. It's all down here from there. So I hear, I know they're all going to be on the bus next year. <laughs> no more pre-K drop. <laughs> Yay, mom. I'm very excited <laughs> yeah. about that. No more, no more daycare payment. Like, yeah. <sighs> all right, Jasmine, what is your toast to joy? So my toast to joy is similar to yours. So Jada has officially finished middle school. So Aww. my daughter is done with middle school. Oh, Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, it's um, that was a road. Uh, I will say it was a journey. <laughs> um, but we're done. And, uh, you know, as a little like kind of celebration for, oh, you guys are like big old high schoolers now. I took her and some of her friends on a little road trip. And it was interesting. Uh, you know, they're they're 14, uh, 13 and 14. And they're very curious about the world. And, you know, I love how I can have conversations with my daughter and her friends about things that, you know, like questions they have and things they want to know. It was eye opening for me to kind of hear like what their concerns are and like what they're thinking about going into high school. But I'm just glad I got that quality time with them. Um, I'm still recovering from the road trip. I am finding that the older I get, the harder it is for me to recover from like long trips. Yeah, that's okay. 
it was all worth it. So my toast to joy is to moving on to high school and also just creating memories with my daughter and her friends as she gets older and kind of, you know, discovers the world. That's so fun. I love a good road trip. But I, I agree that they get harder it gets more difficult to recover from like long road trips and driving, I think. Yeah. All right. So Rachel, what is your toast to joy this week? So we went on a little trip this weekend too. We went to Orlando before my daughter goes to camp and we went to Universal, which I, I like Universal a lot, but I they have a lot of like virtual reality rides that make me very sick. So I was, I sat out some rides and I did a lot of people watching and- um, That's what I usually do too. <laughs> you know, the thing that is so- I was just watching the people I've lived and travel. I've lived a lot of places I've traveled a lot of places. Like there is no diversity like U S diversity. Like Mm. it it is, we're just such a diverse country and we have found a way we're going through a rough patch. And as Heather Cox Richardson said in our hundredth episode, an inflection point does not mean that it's only going to last like a year or two, Mm. but learning to accept each other. And I think that's really kind of this big like push that we have right now is learning to accept all these differences. It's all that have always been there, but we just see it more. And some people are really having to come to terms with that, bless their hearts. Yeah. But we have all been here and we have been living together for a really long time. And we've built a really great country that I think we're going to be okay. It really gives me hope to see all the differences and think, yeah, like I said, We've all been here. We've all been doing this thing for a long time, even if people don't want to accept it. And we just, we need to get over this hump. And I really very much feel like it's a big hump we need to get over. We will though. Yeah, we will. I really, really do think we will, but we have work to do in order for that to happen. But um, I, I, I am filled with hope. And speaking of Toast to Joy, you can actually buy Suburban Women Problem Champagne Flutes that say toast to joy. I recently ordered mine. Oh, mine just came. Oh, oh, I I was a little late to it. (laughs) We also have stickers and an I'm part of the problem t-shirt. I have both of those. I got my t-shirt. If you want to support the pod. Ah, I love it. I'm like, it feels a little weird wearing a t-shirt with like myself on it, but that's okay. (laughs) If you want to support the pod, we'd love for you to check out our merch. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you again next week on another episode of the Suburban Women Problem. The Suburban Women Problem was created by Red, Wine, and Blue. Our producer and editor is Amy Thorstenson, and our project manager is Lindsay Quist. Videos by Abigail Martin and Ashley Hufford. For more information about upcoming events and trainings, or to learn more about Red, Wine, and Blue, follow us on social media or at www.redwine.blue.